This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hi, folks. How are you all doing? Uh, this is Joe Zagorski with another installment of the Pigskin Past. Uh, tonight, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about something that really doesn't get a whole lot of discussion about those wild and crazy NFL fans. Now, if you're listening to this program, I'm guessing you're an NFL fan. And you probably have been for a while. Anyway, uh, American citizens since the days of Red Grange in the 1920s, known as the Roaring Twenties, they've accepted the popularity of pro football as an accepted fact of life. I mean, it's grown in popularity over the many different years. And during those years, college football in the 1920s was still the king in the eyes of many people. But pro football, just as an infant at that time, was growing in status. Practically every year, in fact. And by the 1970s, the majority of the Americans who watched the game were starting to enjoy it more and more to the point where they're hooked on it. I'm one of them. Uh, I can't get enough of it. And I'm guessing that if you're listening to this, you probably enjoy pro football very much, too. Now, it was in the 1970s that the NFL Properties Division was formed, and they changed the life of pro football fans forever. Uh, they were, and they still are, the merchandising arm of the NFL. And before you knew it, uh, many fans would show up at all the stadiums wearing team colors, team logos, team sweatshirts and hats and t-shirts, and it's been that way ever since. Uh, but, you know, what about the fans themselves? I start to question myself about this. What uh, kind of uh, characteristics do they have? Well. You know, what you have to do when you want to bring some measure of excitement to the NFL as a fan, I always look back to the 1970s. A radio sportscaster in Miami seemed to have changed everything. He's a guy by the name of Rick Weaver. He came up with some idea, really out of the blue, uh, during the 1971 season of having Dolphins fans at the Orange Bowl in Miami bring their transistor radios to the game. Well, you're probably asking yourself, what's the big deal about that? Well, he also asked them to bring a white handkerchief to the game. It gets a little bit confusing. Well, those fans who were listening to the broadcasts in the stadium, this guy named Rick Weaver would tell the fans, you know, when to wave their white handkerchiefs. It was usually after a big play or a, t- or a touchdown by the Dolphins, but it was a, a pure genius type of an idea. Uh, today... You know, over four decades later, many Miami traditionalists at the Dolphins games continue to wave their white handkerchiefs after big Dolphin plays. At that time in 1971, I believe it was uh, Larry Zonka and Jim Kick and Mercury Morris and even Coach Shula looking around at all these uh, fans in in the Orange Bowl waving their white handkerchiefs and wondering, wow, we've never seen this before. This is kind of unique. Well, a few years later, in 1975 to be precise, another broadcaster came up with a similar idea for his local team. Myron Cope was a longtime radio sportscaster for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it was he who came up with that splendid idea called the Terrible Towel. Today, everybody recognizes the Terrible Towel. Uh, back at that time in 75, uh, you know, they were actually gold, and then there were some that were black as well. Today, they're pretty much all gold, terrible towels, color-wise. Uh, but, you know, Steelers fans have been waving them since that, 
1975 season, and uh, you know when the Steelers play away games, you still see a multitude of fans waving their terrible towels. Sometimes you could think that the Pittsburgh Steelers fans have taken over other stadiums, especially uh, if they're playing a team that doesn't sell so well as far as tickets. So the terrible towel has been proudly displayed, of course, in NFL stadiums, but specifically in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's quite a spectacle, to be honest with you. Now, all was not an achievement of a spectacular nature when it came to the fans of the NFL during the 1970s. Throughout the decade, when stadium security was nothing compared to what it is today, a new phenomenon occurred, and it was on an individualistic basis. You see, NFL fans who do not have an official field pass are never allowed to go onto the field. Now, sure, many hundreds of fans would run onto a field after you know their team won a big game, uh, specifically in the playoffs. We've seen that happen a lot. But they weren't really arrested or anything like that. They were just, you know, told to get off the field. You know, it's like, it happens. But during the course of a game, every now and then, one single man might decide to take it upon himself to run onto the field. Now, I don't know when it happened for the very first time, but the art of streaking, running onto a football field without any clothes on, seemed to enjoy its zenith during the 1970s. The culprit was quite similar in most instances. Yeah, sometimes it was a female, but more often than not it was a male, a young man in his late teens or early 20s who'd come out of nowhere and run onto the field naked, usually while both teams were in a huddle planning for their next play. Uh, the streaker in question was often intoxicated with alcoholic beverages, but others may have just been dared to do it by his friends to attempt such a crazy stunt as that. Uh, in the early days of streaking, the television networks covering the games actually showed the action. <laughs> it was quite comical to say the least. A naked man running onto the football field with no real destination in mind, other than avoiding a crew of security personnel who were trying to chase him down. Sometimes the streaker would try to steal the football itself and run with it. Uh, the fans in the stands couldn't help but burst out in laughter, and the longer the streaker could elude the policemen and the security personnel chasing him down, the louder of an ovation he received from those fans in the stands. It didn't take long for everyone involved to realize that the only goal that a streaker would have in his own mind was to become famous, even just for a small moment. Uh, he craved attention. And if he could get it, especially national attention. Uh, the spectacle of Monday Night Football in the 1970s drew millions of people across the nation watching those games on their televisions. And the ratings that they got back then just completely dwarfed anything else that was on television at the time. Your typical streaker, he knew this. And he knew that if his act was captured on Monday Night Football, he could become legendary and his act could be watched by millions of people across America. Now, it didn't take too many of these streaking episodes for the network, uh, ABC, and, and other networks uh, during the Sunday games to realize that if their cameras did not follow the streaker, his actions and subsequent arrest would not be aired, making any chance for his fame practically nil. 
Today, you might still come across a random streaker at a game, but you saw a lot of them during the 1970s and most often on Monday Night Football. Now, in our next edition of the Pigskin Past, we'll try to delve a little further into a pro football, uh, a chapter of pro football fandom uh, with a story that might even be hard to believe even today. In fact, I can almost guarantee it. But for the Pigskin Past, this is Joe Zagorski. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.